In fact, that was a part of the um, discussion that was presented by the wise uh, leader of the Sanhedrin in that day. We are in week five of our journey through the book of Acts in connection with the AD series that's on Sunday evenings with NBC. And if you're to take the next section, we start to see that the apostles uh, become persecuted individuals, but they do not back down. They continue to speak boldly and proclaim one key thing. What is that? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that He was God Himself come in the flesh, which was blasphemous to them. If you're to look in Acts chapter 5, verse 33, you would find this. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. So they had history in that day of these would-be messiahs standing up, taking hold of the crowd, and swaying people to be followers of them. He was killed, though, and all his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. It will pass. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because, catch this, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Christ. I hope you're able to find identity with the apostles that are being portrayed as we walk through the book of Acts. These weak, common, ordinary men became bold, authoritative witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin fulfilling the command of Jesus Christ to become witnesses and take the good news, the gospel message, throughout all the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in this part of Acts, we see the beginning of the church, the beginning of the mission. But it was not without its problems. And the problems were not just with the Jewish leaders of the day, nor the Roman leaders of the day. 
the problems also started to emerge from among their own ranks. I found over the years that a lot of times we have the tendency to idealize the New Testament church. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to be back there in the New Testament? I don't know. Do anybody want to be flogged here today? How about that? Take some volunteers. But we think everything's powerfully going well, and in one sense it is. I mean, you, you, you have this broken, uh, disheartened group of Jesus followers who all of a sudden start a movement with masses and masses of people. In fact, if you begin to read through the book of Acts, you start to see how numbers are added daily. Acts 2.41, so those who received the word were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved in Jerusalem. Acts 4.4, many who heard this uh, word of God believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Acts 5.14, more than ever before, more and more men and women were added to their number daily. And you can continue on where it talks about a multiplication and numbers. And we think how cool that would be to be a part of that kind of a church growth movement. But, You can be guaranteed of this. It was not always fun to be trying to lead that type of movement. You know why? Guess what? It wasn't a movement of angels and saints. It was a movement of broken human beings who were, yes, saved by God's grace. But wherever you put a bunch of human beings together, you may have a party for a while, but then the cleanup comes. Excuse me, I'll pass. Right? And what we're going to look at here this morning is um, just a brief little uh, capsule look of what began to happen with them as a growing mass movement of people in that early church that I think still plays its way out in many ways. I know so today with churches. And guess what? We are a local church. And so I'm always mindful of moving through the book of Acts, cheerleading us on, let's ramp it up, let's go out there and fight for Jesus. But there's also going to be some of those stinging kinds of passages on this journey. And today might be one of those. So if you will, take your scriptures again and we're going to continue on into Acts chapter 6 and see what's happening with this great group of people who are... uh, Filled with the Spirit, who are bold, who are excited about the resurrected Messiah. They are gaining numbers from many different directions. And we encounter our first problem. Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right? So we start to uh, identify a little situation here. And the situation is that uh, the masses are quickly uh, accumulating and many people are excited about it, but there is a problem that begins to emerge. And the problem, I guess you could say, uh, is the first case of prejudice within the new church. 
the first case of prejudice within the church. And there's two groups of people that are being looked at here. There are the Hebraic, uh, they're the Grecian Jews, and then they're the Hebraic Jews. Now remember, the church of Jesus Christ started as a Jewish movement. They were looking for a Messiah. Jesus came, fulfilling the prophecies. He became the Messiah. He finished the work of dying for our sins, being raised from the dead, ascending to the Father, sending His Spirit back to be with us. But this was all among a Jewish kind of setting. Now, in the next couple of weeks to come, we're going to see how God breaks it out from Jerusalem and Judea, and they begin to move into Samaria and to the othermost parts of the world. All right, And how he goes about doing that is a very interesting thing. But in this particular chapter, we are still with Jewish Christians. Now, Jewish is an ethnicity, and it is also a religious belief. In fact, you can have secular Jews, you can have Reformed Jews, you can have Orthodox Jews. A secular Jew is somebody who identifies with their ethnicity of coming from the Jewish people but they may be totally irreligious. A Reformed Jew may be someone who is, uh, yes, Jewish culture, believes in God and Yahweh, but they would not practice some of the uh, hard law things that are written in the Old Testament like an Orthodox Jew. So if you went to Jerusalem, you would find Orthodox Jews who, you know, would uh, have certain attire on and have certain kinds of practices. So being Jewish doesn't necessarily mean that you were a follower of the Torah and what we refer to the Old Testament. You may just identify with the ethnicity of it. But when Jesus Christ came and began redeeming people, he was redeeming predominantly this Jewish body of people. Even Peter, and we'll catch this later as the story begins to unfold, his mindset was with the Jewish people. And so when it describes, all right, the the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews, there were two groups of people within the Jews who were becoming Jesus followers at that time. The Grecian Jews were those who were Greek-speaking Christian Jews. And the Hebraic Jews were those who were Hebrew-speaking Christian Jews. All right? Now, I don't necessarily know this is true, but I could probably see it playing its way out. The Hebraic Jews were those who sort of grew up in Jerusalem in the Judea culture, and they were the hometown ladies. And the hometown ladies were seemingly given some preferential treatment as it related to the distribution of food for the widows. The Greek-speaking Jews would have come from another culture. And again, I don't, you know, they could come from Cappadocia, Champontus, Galatia, to Italy, anywhere around the Mediterranean Sea, Greek culture, right? But they were Jewish, but they had been influenced by another culture. And so the Grecian Jewish widows, Christian Jewish widows, uh, I don't know. They were sort of being uh, left out on the feeding rations. And... uh It's true when you like feed animals sometimes with a bunch of puppies or other, you know, the strongest maybe get it. And there's some that are left down. You go, oh, that's too bad. You get in there a minute and go at it. Right. Well, this was not good. Now, we may look at this particular issue and say, was it that big of a deal? Was it that big of a deal what was going on? I mean, hey, people weren't being fed. Somebody needs to do something about this and and we need to get on with it. Well, It wasn't just the widows who weren't being fed. You see, if you were a friend of one of the Grecian Jews' 
that was not being fed, then it started to become your problem too, right? We take on the offenses of other people. And if it was truly a little bit of this, you know, hometown girl kind of thing, then you start to get a little indignant. Now, it's only natural, is it not, to try to take care of your own first. And so that's the culture that they were in and what was happening at that time. I do believe, though, it is one of the first cases of prejudice in the church. If someone objects that uh, it's not maybe a true racial prejudice that's going on, then I would probably just sort of say this, you think about it. Whenever we begin to treat people differently because of their culture, their lifestyle, their ethnic heritage, or the way they speak, then that's the beginning of where prejudice comes from. That's the beginning of where prejudice comes from. And so right here in the midst of this massive movement of people, Satan is still at work, is he not? Because he goes behind the scenes and he begins to bring about division. I heard someone say yesterday that their mom taught them that uh, when the enemy cannot defeat, the enemy seeks to divide. When the enemy cannot defeat, the enemy seeks to divide. And so the haves and the have-nots, who's in, who's out, everybody starts to align. And before you know it, these uh, apostles could have had a significant problem on their hands. And what were they going to do? Billy Graham was once asked a number of years ago if there was one problem, if there was one problem that he could solve, if he had the power to solve it, he said he would bring an end to racial prejudice and all the hatred that goes with it. Friends, our TVs got lit up the last couple of weeks again, did they not? With what's perceived as racial prejudice. And maybe very well there is racial prejudice. But I think the prejudice can go far beyond what's an apparent of a racial kind of thing. Sometimes it's just simply the haves and the have-nots, the people who maybe have hope, the people who don't have hope. And we sit back and we observe that on our televisions or maybe we're involved in some kind of ministry that does deal with the urban poor and we, we don't quite know what to do with it. We don't know if we want to just shout it down and just ignore it. We don't know if we want to speak up for it or what we want to do. But here's the reality. In our world, Satan is seeking always to bring division with people. People of our culture, people of the different ethnicities around us, socioeconomic division. And he does not want a united people. The power of what was happening in the book of Acts was a united body of people filled by the Holy Spirit set out on a holy mission to bring Jesus Christ and the power of God to a lost world. And though Satan could not defeat Jesus on the cross or hold him in the grave, he says, I'm going to take this unified body of people and we're going to seek to bring division. And I tell you what, as we as brothers and sisters in a faith that we carry, or even if you're a new person this morning, or maybe a person who's never really crossed the line of choosing to be a Christ follower, I tell you what, God wants to use us all powerfully in our world to bring about unity. Not 
unanimity where everybody's the same because God loves diversity and differences and, and just getting everybody on the same type of, you know, social level or economic level or, you know, uh, acceptance level. Those aren't necessarily issues. The issues are what brings unity about is when you are unified in one cause, and that cause is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should, as believers, care very much about prejudice in our world, about social and urban plight. That's a part of who we are called to be. But how we go about dealing with it is the question that needs to be investigated. Here's a mere example. Early on, prejudice coming about, division. Now, what should we do? Well, they could have devised a a task force. Apostles just could have picked, hey, you, 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 you. Let's, Let's go. Let's get at this. Or we could have had maybe some other kind of church meetings. Churches are known for having church meetings and sit around and debate the subject what to do. Or maybe we just say, let's just sort of try to put this away for right now. Let's just pass it a little offering here. Let's, let's just do it. You know, what's going to happen in the midst of this? Because you see, it's not just that the widows were being ignored, a certain group of them. There were sort of camps starting to set up. Camps that could bring about division in the midst of this unity that was having a powerful impact in the world of that day. And so we move on to verse 2. First, there was an immediate response. So it says this. So the the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Let's let's act on this. Let's just not ignore that the problem's there. Let someone else take care of it. We're going to deal with it. So call them together. There was an immediate response. Second, there was a clear statement of priorities. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Wait a second. Start talking about you guys for. We got a problem here. The women are not being fed that are from uh, widowed backgrounds. Or I think today, if you want to contextualize them more, I think, you know, we have widows today. And some of you are widows here and trying to be a community that comes around you. But I think a lot of times of single moms as being the widows today with the breakdowns of the families and the homes. And that we need to be mindful of single moms. And some of you are single moms here this morning. And we need to be coming around you and caring for you and supporting you and encouraging you. That's the issue. What are these guys starting to talk about themselves for? There was an immediate response. Calling them together. What to do. But it sort of seems a little bit a bit harsh because it starts to reflect back on them. They said it wouldn't be good for us to deal with this. So forget you guys. We've got to go over here and do our own little jobs. Is that really what's going on? Well, here's what's happening behind the scenes through the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples and the key leaders of that day, they had huge responsibilities. And I, you know, I, and I caught myself last night with, I mean, last Sunday night watching the episode with Peter and the Ananias and uh, Sapphira, Sapphira, and uh, that was a dramatic death of them when they lied against the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? And uh, you're going like, whoa, he's got that. And then, you know, here's you know, Barnabas shows up. He wants to contribute the money. And, and I'm like, Peter is probably starting to get overwhelmed with leading this mass of new people. He's excited. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He knows God's called him to do it, right? But it wasn't an easy morning when he woke up every day. 
like, okay, how are we going to head into this? And the Holy Spirit had, had called him and, and, and the apostles to some primary roles. And so one of the things I think the adversary does, not only does he try to bring division when he can't defeat, he will also bring distraction. And so he was wanting to get them distracted from the primary thing that needed to be dealt with. In and out of prison cells, whatever it may be, they could have got all caught up in all the peripheral stuff. And the Holy Spirit speaks conviction into their heart saying, you've got to stay with the primary things of importance right now. Not that these other things, feeding the widows is unimportant. We are a community moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have got to keep you on the main thing. Because here's the reality is if you take a leader... And a lot of times leaders have multiple gifts. They can do multiple things. That's why sometimes I end up becoming leaders. But if leaders are doing a whole lot of everything, they end up a lot of times doing a whole lot of nothing in the end. And so there's this calling for the leaders of the day to stay focused, to set the priorities. And I don't think that... uh, even with all the changing of generations from the time of Acts, you know, we've, we've got now churches that aren't, you know, part of this, you know, this uh, primary movement of the flood of people. But, you know, you have churches today with, you know, all kinds of programs and needing to oversee budgets and the development of leadership and, and organizing teams and seeing that, that there's so it's so easy. For any church, whether, and we're not a large church by any means, right? But I think of some of the larger churches, other things, but all churches, it's easy for the leadership of the church to become easily distracted. I personally have a very hard time with this passage because I can identify with being spread so broadly that I'm one of those good for nothing kind of people, but yet I have a heart to make sure that all the needs are met. And so. I struggle with it because I can identify very closely with it. But no amount of cultural change over the generations can obscure the basic truth that spiritual leaders must focus their efforts on the Word of God and prayer. And that's probably the harder one for me in this passage as a pastor is, okay, I'll focus on the Word. I'll focus on teaching and interacting with people concerning God's Word, but prayer, I have some prayer time, but I'm not one of these people that loathe long times in prayer. I find myself continually in prayer, a prayer spirit, but I'm like, okay. So the Holy Spirit dropped a bomb and said, focus on this. Focus on this. Okay. So what happens from there? Verse 3. It begins with congregational involvement. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The congregation was to be involved, and then there was a clear statement of qualifications for those who would begin pressing out on this particular need that was starting to bring division amongst the body. They were to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Then there is a commitment to um, a definite delegation. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. There's a restatement of the priorities that the Holy Spirit's convicting them about. But they weren't neglecting this need. They weren't neglecting the rising division and split that could be happening in the body. They said, we need to keep ourselves devoted here. And then we need to empower the congregation, the body of people that is emerging to be able to deal with this. 
They didn't bunker away in some kind of special meeting necessarily, though they called people together for this. They didn't, you know, have to pass certain kinds of uh, decisions or policies to get people. It was just like, okay, you guys need to come together and you discern through the Spirit, right? He wasn't just working through the leaders. You, if we kind of refer to them as lay people, lay people is a term sometimes. If you're not a part of the clergy, I really don't see myself as a clergy. I'm just, you know, just like you. We're just trying to make things happen for Jesus in this world. But there was this division that's happened over time in churches. Like if you've got the professional clergy, then you've got the lay people. Well, if you had that kind of division in your mind with this, it's just basically saying, you know, the disciples are stepping back. The apostles are going, hey, we're going to keep ourselves devoted to the word and to prayer. And you, the lay people, you guys need to pick this up and start deciding about how God's working in it. And so that's exactly what starts to happen amongst them. They start to pick it up and figure out. And uh, so they end up choosing, choosing some people. So verse five, verse five says this, this proposal pleased the whole group. Okay. Thanks for empowering us. Thanks for not being the power pastor. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, and we're going to hear a lot more about Stephen here briefly, right, in the next couple of weeks with these episodes and what happens with Stephen. He was introduced this last week on the series on Sunday night. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, and then they laid their hands on them. They prayed and laid their hands on this group of people who were brought forward as the congregation sort of decided, okay, what we'll do. And the people that they brought forward, all those names there, guess what? They're Greek names. So guess what group of people they picked their leaders from? If the Greek-speaking Christian Jews, widows, are had the problem, then let's pick people from their group to stick up for them and do something about this situation. And so they're Greek-speaking names. The apostles lay their hands on them, which means we not only empower them, we place our blessing upon them. They are our representatives, so you treat and you run with them as strongly as you would run with us. And they handed it off so that the apostles then could keep themselves focused back on the ministry of the Word and to prayer. This all had pleased them, and things started to go well with what could have gone very wrong. They presented them to the apostles. They laid their hands on them. And then verse 7, here's the result. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It said that the Jewish, uh, that the Chinese word, Chinese word for crisis is um, two word symbols put together. One is danger, and the other is opportunity. And so, whenever a crisis hits our life personally, it's probably a good couple word symbols. That crisis that you're in can be a crisis of danger that can lead to great demise. Or it's an opportunity that can lead to blessing. 
Here's the first crisis that hits the New Testament church. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We hear the first us and them. You ever catch the us and them language? Well, we, us, we're of this stripe, but them. And it can even happen with in your own little pocket of friends, can't it? Well, we're different. Why? Satan behind the scenes, our own fallen sinful nature, trying to bring division. Crisis happens in the New Testament church, and crisis happens in every church that has existed since then. I was camped in one community for 20 years. There were some significant churches in that community. We were blessed to be a part of that mix. And it was funny to me. Funny in, I don't know, maybe a scary way, maybe just a sad way. But over the course of those 20 years, I would see one church have a crisis, rise up. I'd see people split out of that church. Some would go here. Some would go there. Some would stay. Then a period a year or two later, another crisis would hit this church. And sometimes the crisis were really tragic. Sometimes they're because of maybe of a moral failure or some other kind. Other times the crisis were just, I don't know, just it just started to be a ripple effect. So-and-so got their feelings hurt, and then the next person, the next person is like, what are the dominoes here? What's the deal? I don't know. It's like a big exodus out of that church. Something must not be happening, right? And then, I wouldn't say it's an evil spirit, but some type of spirit lifts and moves to another church. Not another church. So I find this division in Acts 6, this crisis, not only a crisis then, but a crisis that continues today. In every church, including our church, we just need to be wise unto the crisis. But when a crisis comes, whatever it may be, will it be one that heads us to danger or will it be one that heads us to opportunity? And in that crisis, time that comes, will we turn to one another or turn against one another? The disciples were wise in saying, hey, let's get together. Let's figure this out. What can happen? How can we move things forward? And they began empowering the body of Christ to do the ministry of the Lord. Now, throughout church history, if you study it, the empowerment of the people moved away and moved back into some professional clergy and those with certain kinds of credentials and so on and so forth. But God, through all the generations, continues to try to empower everyone. Remember what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old dreams men will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit. God's Spirit's poured out upon all of us. And so all of us in this room are equal. But not all of us in this room have the same roles. We have to discern what are the roles God's calling us to do to move forward His ministry work in our valley and in our world. We could take time and go to Romans 12. Go to the 1 Corinthians passage that speaks on spiritual gifts. But here's my simple positioning thought to you. God has called you and I to serve. How are we going to serve the movement of the Holy Spirit in the years that God gives us with the people that God endears us to be endeared to? 
And are we being obedient to that serving role? It's just a simple thought, simple challenge that comes out of this passage in Acts 6 where the church, though idealized many times, began to take on some of the significant problems that are inherent to human beings, even if they are filled with the Spirit. Martin Luther King said this, that anybody can become great because anybody can serve. Anybody can become great because anybody can serve. And so when we see the sad case of what happened in Baltimore, and it's happened here as a nod at times in Southern California and South L.A. and Watts and other places. You, you just grieve when you see the brokenness. But I tell you what, the challenge for us is to serve and encourage others to serve one another. Things do not change overnight. But they're not going to change by ignoring it, saying it doesn't exist. Prejudice and division in our world exist. But through the power of the community of Christ and the gospel of Jesus who can transform and change lives, we can serve. And as we serve, I believe people are drawn to Jesus. Why? Because it's said of Jesus what? He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. It's a daily choice to serve other people. It's a daily choice as well to serve in a community like this. Made a decision to stuff our seat backs with one extra card. Again, not because we don't have enough cards in those seat backs. <laughs> but the first serve opportunities is just a way for you to take and say, hey, how can I be a part of this body? But you know what I really endear more towards seeing us serve is not alongside of serving with the church, just to serve people who are in need. And that may be in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. Maybe people God gets you associated with that he wants to see your life, their lives changed, and he's going to pick you to serve them. We have an opportunity today. I'm going to ask Brian and Shelby to come up. Do you guys mind coming up? I put them on the spot. I saw them walk in today. I know they're taking care of the four little blonde girls today because their mom and dad's gone. <laughs> But um, Ryan Olofsson and his wife Shelby, Ryan was a um, youth pastor here for uh, the Awakening Course Church at that time for a couple, three years, right? Yeah, almost three years. And uh, I know that they've made some key decisions in their life, and because you're part of their family, I wanted them to give you a heads up on it. But I, I want you to know this. I haven't got to know Shelby that much, but to the degree I got to know Ryan when I first came, um, servant. Serve, care for people, a heart of compassion. And uh, the history that I know Shelby has as well, that's sort of why they got together, I think, in part. But uh, guys, give us a little update on how you're choosing to serve God yeah. uh, in this next step of your life. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys, and we just appreciate uh, the support, as Carrie was saying, um, we've been able to talk over the last gosh, few months, and uh, 
just God's really been uh, guiding us in our process of kind of uh, next steps, what's next for us. Uh, Shelby had a chance to serve on the African Mercy ship in Conakry, uh, Africa, before we got married. And I said, next time you go, I have to go with you. So um, God was just working uh, in our hearts over the last year about uh, opportunities. We've looked at several different opportunities, but uh, the opportunity to go serve with the Mercy ship uh, came up. It came up by email. We applied, and uh, at the time there wasn't anything for me to do, um, but Shelby would be able to be a nurse. And so we figured, okay, that's a closed door. Uh, kept praying, and then literally about a month later, we get this email saying, surprise, we uh, are going to have you serve for 10 months. So we got that email. We're really excited to go. So we're going to be going um, aboard the Mercy ship, and we'll be serving in Madagascar, Africa. There's a lot of uh, issue with Ebola in West Africa, so they had to move out for the time being. So we, we will be in Madagascar uh, for 10 months. So we're really, really excited. And it's all part of our mix, I think, as God's uh, really grooming us to um, gear up for possibly more service overseas. I think this is just definitely a first step for us to see what that might look like. Um, but really, it's just meeting needs. And when I came in, um, I wanted to share this uh, scripture, Psalm 918, but the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. And we just want to help meet needs of people. And I'm just honored to serve alongside of my wife. And we just appreciate your prayers for us as we go do that. So, But thanks for letting us share that with you this morning. When are you guys leaving again? We leave. We'll be in Durban, South Africa, and we will be there on July 24th, and then we will cruise down on the ship to Madagascar. I'm not the biggest fan of ships, so it's going to be <laughs> kind of interesting for me. But again, this whole process, this whole process is just new. It's completely out of the box for me, ministry-wise. You know, coming from uh, the Alliance um, and their heart for church planning, and really the importance of that, and that's why we meet needs is to help grow the church. Um, as well, but uh, definitely out of the box. So, speaking of my husband being so service oriented, um, so the ship is obviously it's, it's pretty much a floating hospital, hospital, so it's all medical. So I went as a nurse, and um, like Ryan said initially, we thought, oh, well, I can serve. What's he going to do? And they said, oh, well, you know, we have housekeeping. And I thought, yeah, no, <laughs> Ryan's not going to go vacuum for ten months. So they said, well, we have this media liaison position, and Ryan applied, and then they said, oh, well, we don't need nurses anymore. So it was like, oh, okay, well, they need you, but not me. Again, another closed door, and then eventually, like Ryan said, they sent out this email. But Ryan's never been on the ship before, and he's committed to 10 months. And so I've been, and I'm so excited to go home, but poor Ryan is like, we're going to be where? Doing what? So it's, you know, it's pretty amazing to be able to serve with each other and I feel very served by my husband as well that he would take this opportunity having no experience with the organization mm-hmm. and what we're doing. And the fact that he'd be willing to do that is really fantastic. So we're very excited for this next step. So so if you want to take Ryan out on a fishing trip, yeah. <laughs> in my natal practice before he goes, right? I think Tom Parnakian did that, and I got <laughs> sick. So. <laughs> Well, Josh, Axine, and I are like, oh, my goodness. Um, but for the record, I, I will uh, sweep and you know, vacuum if needed. I mean, absolutely, we go to serve, whatever that means. Actually, there's times where we're not going to be doing really the role we think, and that's what it means to serve the Lord. We go with servants' hearts. You know, We're not going to go with an expectation. If they change that, we roll with it, but we're just going in the name of the Lord. So. Thanks, guys. Well, on behalf of our body, we will be praying for you. We love you. We miss you around here. We know that God's got things for you, though, and so you go as an extension of us as a community of people, too. 
Can we just pray? Lord, this morning as we focus on this Acts 6 and uh, the stepping up of the apostles to empower and send out the body, we are so grateful that that was your plan because we can all be in. We can all have a part of the unique dynamic work of you changing and transforming people's lives. Lord, we are blessed here today just to be encouraged by Ryan and Shelby and knowing that you've called them to this 10-month journey on the Mercy Ship. And we just pray that you would really go before them and their plans and their preparations and even what they'll be doing um, as a part of that ministry there. Lord, just continue to bless their lives as your servants and as your ministers of the word. I know Ryan's a deep minister of your word and desires to be able to impart that to people. We just pray you'd bless his life as he's serving others to be able to do that. And Shelby as well as she ministers and gives care uh, to others who uh, are in physical needs. Lord, just use them to powerfully take your gospel into places and to people who may never come across it except by their touch. Lord, we love you, and you, we thank you that we get to do this, participate in your ongoing kingdom ministry. Amen. 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 Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. In two weeks, next week is Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Don't forget that, guys. And, um, whoops. But on the 17th, we're going to be getting deeper in to this Acts effort to be able to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth and how God does it. And on the 17th of May, I'm going to call that Great Commission Sunday 2015. We are a part of a larger movement called the Christian Missionary Alliance, which has 700 missionaries and international workers in 70 different countries around the world. And uh, we mentioned that we're going to be going on a road trip because the general council, the national gathering that comes every two years is going to be held in Long Beach at the end of this month. And we want you all to go or feel led to go if you're able to get on there and and know about it nightly, 7 p.m., Long Beach Convention Center. We're going to be doing the road trip then, right? We're going to be doing a road trip uh, on that Sunday. It's actually not Memorial Day. I was confused. I always thought Memorial Day is the last Sunday of May, but it's not if there's no Monday. And so Memorial Day is on the 24th. But on the 31st, we're going to be doing a road trip for those who want to gather here at 730 and go with some other people or for you just to drive yourself. And we're going to participate in the worship service and missionary rally at 930 down at the convention center with probably 5,000 plus people. It's going to be a big deal. I want you to come and be a part of that. And many of you last week, by the way, when you signed up, yes, no, or maybe, overwhelming number of yeses. And the, any of the no's that were here were pretty much, I'm just out of town, or the maybes, I'm not quite sure of my schedule yet. So that's really good news. But when we go to general council as a church body with all the other 2,000 Alliance churches in the United States, we are participating in this serving the nations and forwarding the book of Acts into the ends of the world, right? We are going to be taking with us an offering. And on that Sunday, they're going to have a large offering for the Christian Missionary Alliance and what it does in being able to send missionaries around the world. Great Commission Fund is what it's called that supports those 700 workers in 70-some different countries. And one of the areas that the Alliance is radically involved in is in the Middle East. On the 17th, however, we're going to take an offering for Great Commission Fund that we will then take to council with us That's why you have that insert that was given to you. You can read more about that. But I want you to watch this video clip concerning Great Commission Sunday. And on the 17th, we're going to really see how God works in the book of Acts to move his church into the uttermost parts of the world and to serve his purposes in all the nations. The year was 1890. The Alliance sent its first workers to the Middle East 
Two pioneering women from the Missionary Training Institute at Nyack went to what was considered one of the hardest fields for missionary work. The majority of the population did not take kindly to our workers' presence in their homeland. At best, these gospel servants were merely tolerated, and yet still more came. Sometimes it felt like their work was fruitless, but they were relentless in the face of wars, disease, and a religion antagonistic to the good news of a savior. 1923, pioneer missionary George Braden arrived with his family. He often traveled by camel hundreds of miles through open desert to proclaim the gospel to the local people he grew to love. Eventually, they came to receive him gladly, and they listened attentively to his message. 1948, shortly after the war in Palestine, George and a young disciple planted a church in a border town along the pilgrimage route. This solitary outpost was the only Christian witness in the area, and it continues to grow and minister to this day. The courage and self-sacrificing spirit of our Alliance missionaries to preach the gospel would, in time, reap a great harvest. But that time is now. The Alliance family's unwavering commitment to pray and give sacrificially to the work produced a strong foundation of Alliance churches. God was positioning these believers to provide for the spiritual and physical needs of thousands of Syrians who had been displaced by civil war. The long-awaited harvest in the desert is upon us, and it's because 100 years ago, the Alliance was relentless in its pursuit to see the gospel spread throughout the Middle East. Now it's our turn. God has placed many new Alliance workers in unreached areas all across the globe, and it will take a new generation of Alliance people, people like you and me, who are willing to persevere along with them. Because the Alliance is in it for the long haul, we need you to be in it for the long haul. It's slow, hard work, but it's the work of the gospel. It takes an investment. It often takes a long time. 2,000 years of history instructs us. This is the way the church is built. the worship team to come up there's work to be done and uh, the alliance is always on the front edge of trying to be able to go to unreached areas and establish churches where churches do not exist i encourage you to take this home with you today and just pray about it if god would ask you to participate in this offering that we're going to be receiving on uh, may the 17th for great commission sunday for us as a local church and um, just on that end we're going to have the ushers come to receive the lord's tithes and offerings today as we close out with this song, declaring our faith with the Creed song. And um, just want to encourage you as part of this awakening body. We've had uh, this interesting uh, journey with our financial efforts ourselves this year. The first couple months were very, very, very weak and scary, if I can say that. But the last two months, you guys have responded extremely well and has put us back in a safe 
uh, financially sound position for what we hope to see carry through for the next month, months through the, the budget year. So thank you for your sacrificial ongoing giving to God's work through this local body. And then I just also want to encourage us to continue on in our good work of giving by being able to give to God's work that's around the world with this offering on the 17th. So ushers come, let's join together and declare the truth that we believe in through this song.